How's everybody doing? It's good to be here. My name is Tony, as Tony said. <laughs> I'm one of the pastors here. I serve as the Westside Venue Director. Uh, we are in the final week of a series where we have been going through the Apostles' Creed um, really since early December. And we have been going through this creed line by line. And every week we stand together uh, to recite the Apostles' Creed. So let's all stand one more time uh, as we recite this Apostles' Creed together as a church family. It says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can have a seat. So 70 years ago, this month, two young American men moved to Ecuador with the hopes of sharing their Christian faith with an unreached people group. Jim Elliott and Pete Fleming, uh, they left the States and they moved to Quito, uh, the capital of Ecuador, to learn Spanish, but also to prepare for when they and some others would move down there permanently uh, to commit their lives to reaching other people with the gospel. Uh, Jim and his friends, they were Midwestern people, uh, and they, you know, they had heard about this unreached people group in Ecuador uh, called the Warani. Now, the Warani tribe, uh, they were pretty known in this area to be violent um, and a hostile people. Uh, they didn't speak English. They were an unreached group. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have anything like that. But, but over the next few years, Jim and Pete and three of their friends, along with their wives, they moved down to Ecuador uh, to try and reach these people. And on January 8th, 1956, Jim and Pete and three others, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, and Roger Udarian, they, they flew a prop plane uh, onto this small strip of land where the Warani tribe were settled. And over the past few months, they had been dropping gifts off and, and they had learned some of the Warani language. They were shouting greetings and stuff like that. So they were really excited uh, to finally make contact with these people. But uh, on that day... Uh, those five men were killed by the Warani people, uh, by the hands of those that they were trying to share the gospel with. And we know much about what happened leading up to that day. Uh, and we know actually a lot of after that day from the wives and the family members of those five men. Uh, but we know a lot about it from the, actually the journals of Jim Elliott himself. Back in 1949, seven years before that day, Jim wrote something in his journal that really seemed to set the course of his Christian life and his missionary work there in Ecuador. He wrote this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim's life and desire to reach the Warani people was really the fruit of this very statement. You know, Jim and his friends are among many Christians throughout history whose faithfulness and ministries in their present lives 
were empowered by their view of the end, of future glory, of, of resurrection, of people committing their lives to Jesus and, and being united to him in faith. For these men and these women, their view of the end changed their lives in the present. As I said earlier, since early December, we've been going through this Apostles' Creed line by line. And this creed, it's a historic confession of the core doctrines of our Christian faith. And today we're finishing it up by looking at the last line, which says this, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. You know, this line of the creed is actually unique to the rest of the lines that we've already been through because this is future looking. This is looking forward to what happens at the end of our earthly lives. And as we look at this line of the creed, we're gonna answer this question this morning. How does our view of the end change our lives in the present? If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, something unique about this series that we've been in is that we've been jumping all over the Bible. Uh, which is a fun, fun thing to do, you know, like this is a confession of faith. So this is something where there's a lot of verses that tie into a lot of these lines of the creed. But today we're actually going to be spending most of our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because this chapter, it's very exhaustive when it comes to the topic of the resurrection. And the letter of 1 Corinthians was actually written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he wrote this letter to a church in Corinth, which is in modern day Greece, and this is in AD 54. So this is about 20 years after uh, Jesus was crucified. And we see throughout this letter uh, that this church has some growing up to do because <laughs> uh, there's a lot of warnings and a lot of things that Paul writes to them on. He, he corrects them that there's people in the church that are just suing each other. There's people in the church that are getting drunk on communion wine. There's people in the church who are getting in these little factions, these groups of like, well, I prefer this pastor. Well, this pastor is way better. Like this is what's happening in 1 Corinthians. But in chapter 15, Paul brings them back to the foundation of their faith. And that's the gospel. This is what he starts with in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse one. Now I wanna make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. This is it, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Okay, so before Paul gets into anything about our resurrection, he reminds this church of the gospel. He says he's already told them. In verse three, he says that he's passed on what's most important. And it's really simple. It's this, Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. He resurrected on the third day. So before Paul gets into anything about resurrection, he reminds them that this gospel is the very fuel of our Christian lives. I mean, look at what he says. It impacts every part of who we are. He says that the gospel is something that they received, that they heard it in the past, that they're standing on the gospel right now that's present and they're being saved by the gospel. That's future. It's this reminder that the gospel should be front and center for us for our entire lives because it's the gospel that not only saves us from our sin, but it sustains us in our present life. And it also seals our future redemption. This is what the gospel does for us. 
But apparently there's people in the Corinthian church that had heard the gospel, but they actually had kind of given up on one part of it. They had given up on the resurrection. And just a few verses later, Paul goes on to talk about how Jesus resurrected from the dead and that 500 people saw him. Like that's a lot of witnesses. Jesus spent time with a lot of people. But the people in Corinth, they were living as though the resurrection weren't a real thing. That it was not going to happen. And we see this in verse 12. Look at what Paul writes. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be more pitied than anyone We should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so if you've read much of Paul in the New Testament, he belabors points. (laughs) He'll say it like seven times. And here he says it over and over again. You cannot lose the resurrection, okay? We know the resurrection is true because look at Jesus. How can some of you say there's no resurrection, Paul writes, if 500 people saw Jesus resurrect from the dead? How can you say that? Paul then goes on to list a bunch of things that were to be true if the resurrection was just like an epic prank. Like if the disciples just pulled off this crazy trick that, oh, he's resurrected, but not really. Like all these things would be true, okay? If we don't have the resurrection, our proclamation is in vain. It's pointless. Our faith is of no value. We are liars about God. Our faith is worthless. Second time Paul has said that. We're still in our sins, but finally, look at what he says. If there is no resurrection, Christians are to be the most pitied people in the world. Quite the list from Paul here, huh? It's a good thing he didn't just say amen, because that's not really how you want to end a sermon. But no, if it's, in short, if the resurrection is not real, we are total fools. We can't lose this. If we lose the resurrection, we have a worthless, meaningless faith. It is that important, Paul says. Paul also writes that if we have hope, if if our hope in Christ is for this life only, we are to be more pitied than anyone. Why would he say that? Well, I think he says that because life is really hard. Sin often reigns. We see the impacts of sin in our lives in the lives of people we love in the world every single day. This is true regardless of your worldview. Irregardless of what you believe, tragic things happen every single day. But that's why, as Christians, our hope in Christ, it's not for this life only. Our lives look forward to a future glory, to a day when pain and suffering and cease or and, and sin will end. They will cease. And we know that's true because of the gospel. That's why Paul starts there, the very beginning of this chapter. Jesus conquered death. He rose. Paul writes this again in verse 21. He says, For since death 
came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is something that Paul likes to do in a lot of his letters. Before the Apostles' Creed series, we were in a series on Romans. We spent about 35 weeks in the book of Romans. And Paul does this in Romans chapter 5. He talks about how death came through this first man. It came through Adam. But life comes through Christ. The same logic follows with the resurrection. He says, because Jesus resurrected from the dead, that shows us that those who believe in him, those who are in Christ, they will also resurrect from the dead. We will be made alive. Now that truth of our future resurrection, it it kind of brings forth this question that many of us, we want to know. It's like, okay, what's that going to be like? Like, give me details. Like, what what are we going to be like? And people in Corinth, in the Corinthian church, were asking Paul that question too. Look at what he says in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Seems like a great question. Paul responds, you fool. <laughs> like, sometimes I just want to, like, pull Paul aside and be like, dude, you need to learn how to, like, foster a discussion. Uh, if he was a middle school teacher... Kids aren't asking questions in that class. He's like, you're all fools. No, this is what he says, though. You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And, and as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants. And to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There's one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual one. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. (sighs) Okay, a lot of verses. Thank you for bearing with me. But I didn't want to cut any of that out because we needed to see that whole thing. This is Paul's line of argument here. He's saying there's a difference between this natural body and this spiritual body. Paul writes how our earthly natural bodies are suited for this earth. Right? That's where we live. But because of sin, these natural earthly bodies are subject to some pretty bad things. Like deterioration, aging, death. I mean, as I get older, I am reminded of this more and more. Things on my body hurt for no reason. Like, I wake up and think, I didn't do anything yesterday, and I'm sore. Like, I don't get it. But this is, like, this is part of who we are. But that spiritual resurrection body is different. It won't be subject to the effects of sin. There won't be sickness. There won't be death. There won't be sadness. These bodies are going to be raised, as the text says, imperishable. We see that corruption, or we see that comparison of of those two. When Paul says these bodies that we have now are sown in corruption, that's sin. But they're raised in incorruption. Incorruption. 
Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. These natural bodies are sown here, but then they're raised spiritual. We see in the resurrection, our bodies will be so much greater than our earthly natural bodies here. But even as we read those 15 verses, we're like, okay, I think I'm getting it. We still want more details. <laughs> we're like, come on, like, tell me more. Like, I want to know what, like, this is going to be better. Uh, but we actually don't have to wonder in a sense because we have a resurrected person who appeared to 500 people. Remember, Jesus resurrected from the dead. He hung out with people. We have evidence of this in the scriptures. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 3 about what our bodies will be like in the resurrection. This is Philippians 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Our resurrected bodies, I'm convinced, it's going to be like that of Jesus. And what do we know of Jesus' resurrected body from the scripture? Well, we can see it in the gospels. Jesus was recognizable. He hung out with his disciples and the disciples were like, hey, it's, it's you, <laughs> but it's not you. It's, it's kind of, it, it's different. Jesus had a physical body. He wasn't just a ghost. He hung out with his disciples and it was better than it was before. Jesus ate and drank. Who's excited about that one, right? Yeah, like we're gonna eat in the resurrection. I love food. Um, but, But Jesus showed up and he asked the disciples, you guys got any food? And they're like, yeah. And they gave him food and he ate. It was a great day. Jesus also showed up that day with visible scars. Remember what he said to Thomas, the disciple? He was like, I'm not gonna believe it unless I put my hand in his side. Jesus is like, Tom, come here. Touch my hands. Touch my side. It's me. The last thing we see about Jesus is that he can travel effortlessly. He can walk through walls and he can fly. So finally in the resurrection, we're superheroes. Yes. It's going to be great. But here's what I'm getting at, okay? Like this is what awaits us. We will have resurrected bodies that are free from the bondage of sin. But they're still uniquely ours. And we're going to spend that time in the presence of God. See, Paul is talking about this resurrection of the body. And he finishes this idea in verse 50. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what is this saying? Our earthly lives are often filled with pain and sorrow and sin. Death is a great enemy. Our earthly bodies die. I mean, we're reminded of this when we attend funerals. Aren't we? There, it's there we feel most strongly the sting 
of death and the pain of it. But death will not always reign. Death will be defeated. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, Paul writes that the last enemy that will be defeated is death. And that'll happen when Christ returns. When he returns to the earth, those who believe who are in Christ will be transformed. For, for those who are here, when Jesus comes back, it's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye, in a moment. And those who had died will also undergo this transformation where mortality is clothed with immortality. When the bodies of our humble condition will be made into the likeness of his glorious body. We must remember the resurrection. This is good news. This news fuels our faithfulness as Christians today. Along with that resurrection of the body, we also see that there is going to be the life everlasting. That's what it says in the Apostles' Creed. This is the truth that life exists beyond this earthly life that we have. This life isn't all there is. We were, we were told that in 1 Corinthians 15, remember? If our hope in Christ is for this life only, we're to be most pitied. The truth is that eternal life exists for every human being. But the nature of that life will be different based on where our faith is in this life. For those who live their lives on earth rejecting Christ, apart from his offer of forgiveness of sins, their eternal lives will be spent away from Jesus too. That's the hell that the Bible speaks about. But for those who choose to follow Jesus, to put their faith in him, to trust in him for salvation, they will be with him for the life everlasting. Paul gives a glimpse of this earlier on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He writes this, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. You know, I think culturally, and even in the church sometimes, due to our lack of understanding of heaven, we can often think of it really negatively. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of details on what heaven's like, and we fill that lack of knowledge with doubt or pessimism. We think heaven's going to be boring, or we think all these things. But what this verse tells us is that being in the presence of God, that will be better than anything our earthly minds can conceive of. It's just going to be better. And because of that, we see in Colossians chapter 3, another letter that Paul wrote, what we should do what we should set our mind on because of those truths. This is Colossians 3, verse, tw- verse 1. So if you have been raised with Christ, that is, if you are a Christian, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. At the beginning of this sermon, I asked a question, how does our view of the end change our lives in the present? Well, it impacts it more than I think we believe. For those of us who have been raised with Christ, we set our minds on eternal things. We let our earthly lives in the present be influenced by the truth that our lives are hidden in Christ right now. Our relationships, our careers, our faithfulness, our commitments, everything. We set our minds on things above. And when Jesus appears, we will appear with him in glory. Paul writes 58 verses 
in chapter 15. It's the longest chapter we have in 1 Corinthians by a long shot. The next longest chapter is 40 verses. All of this is just explanation. (laughs) The first 57 verses of those 58, it's explanation. This is what the resurrection is. This is how we know it's true. This is what it's going to be like. This is why we should look forward to it. But the last verse of chapter 15 is not explanation. It's a command. It's an imperative. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters. So in light of everything in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, everything about the resurrection, this is what I want you to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul's hope for these brothers and sisters in Christ in Corinth was that their view of the end, the resurrection of their bodies, the life everlasting, that would be the fuel of their faithfulness in the present. To be steadfast, to be immovable, to be excelling in the Lord's work, a work that Paul reminds them of, it is not in vain. It is worth it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he talked about how the most impactful Christians in the present world were the ones who had the greatest understanding of eternity. This is what Lewis writes. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Jim Elliott and his four friends lost their earthly lives that day, January 8th, 1956. But that did not mean that their work was meaningless. They had committed their lives to the greatest work in the world, reaching lost people with the gospel. And that work didn't end that day. In some ways, the work actually began that day, January 8th. Jim's wife, Elizabeth, and Rachel Saint, wife of Nate Saint, they stayed in Ecuador after their husbands died. They lived with the Warani people. And one of the tribal leaders that killed Jim and his friends, his name was Minkaye. Years after that day, through the faithful work of these wives and their families, Minkaye, along with some others, became Christians. This is a picture of Minkaye years after he had become a Christian. And the guy standing with Minkaye there is Steve Saint. Steve is the son of Nate Saint, one of Jim's friends who was with him who died too. Steve was five years old when Minkaye killed his dad. But Steve, along with his mom and his family, they stayed and they reached the Warani people. Since becoming a Christian, Minkaye and Steve traveled around the world sharing the gospel. 
sharing the message of grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. And Minkaye died in 2020, and now he is in the presence of Jesus from the faithful work of these people. I said earlier, much of what we know of these faithful men and women comes from Jim Elliott's journal. And I want to read to you the last thing Jim wrote on January 8th uh, before they flew down and landed that plane on that strip of land. This is what Jim wrote, January 8th, 1956. I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze and glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, the pleasure, the sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy he shall give me a host of children, i.e. converts, that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see him, touch his garments and smile into his eyes, ah, then not stars nor children shall matter, only himself Like the many faithful Christian women and Christian men who had gone before him, Jim went to be with the Lord. That day, he lost his earthly life. And that is because of this glorious truth that the last enemy to be defeated will be death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. My hope is that we here at Riverview today And every day, we realize that how we view the end of our earthly lives, it greatly impacts how we live in the present. I believe in the resurrection of the body and of the life everlasting. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for that truth. God, many of us, we see the impact and the effects of sin. We're living through that right now of our own sin, the sin of others. But God, we we look at the faithfulness of these, these Christian men and these women of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and all these other people. And we're just reminded of this glory that awaits us this future glory. We let that fuel our faithfulness here now to trust you more, to love you more, to enjoy you more and to help others do the same. God, I just thank you for the last few months in this creed where we are reminded of these core truths that we believe, that we trust in and that we rest in as followers of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.